we'll get in. Father, we thank you for, for who you are. This morning as we come into this place, we are reminded that uh, there are many other churches gathering at this moment. Uh, and God, we pray that you uh, would speak uh, to them just as you speak to us, that you would encourage and equip, Father, and that we would begin to see a, a movement uh, throughout uh, Nevada County, throughout Placer County, God, that we would just see uh, you reaching further and farther for your glory, for your goodness. Um, God, where we can play a part in that, where we can step out and live differently, would you help us to do so? Would you help us to live as a reflection of who you are? And so, God, as we come to your word this morning and we wrestle with it, uh, God, would you uh, keep our eyes fixed on you? Would you reveal uh, hard truths for us? Would you also help us to, to navigate this well, uh, but at the same time? way, Father, would we in all things continue to make much of who you are, for you are good, and we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I want to start um, by reading a passage from Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28. It'll be up on the screen, uh, and it says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Today we are going to step into a topic that has all sorts of facets to it. And we're going to walk a line, but we're going to look to Scripture to guide us in this. As, as we step into chapter 21 of Exodus, we're going to see right off the bat that there is laws concerning slavery. Now, there's a lot of other things that are contained in this passage this morning, and, and we could try and rifle through them all and just and kind of leave a subtext there on slavery. But as, as we were studying through this and looking through this, it seemed like we needed to spend the majority of our time here this morning, and hopefully you'll understand why. But to, to begin to kind of lay a groundwork here, I was, I was reading this week, uh, and I, I came across something that was fascinating in, in kind of all the wrong ways. In 1807, the Society for the Conversion of Negro Slaves, as it was called, created a resource to reach slaves that were part of the British Empire and in the Caribbean Isles. Now, this society was founded to, to bring three, three things, kind of a three-pronged approach. The first was that they hoped to take this, these selected texts to uh, make Jesus known. They wanted to bring the hope of Jesus to, to Africans who were enslaved and working uh, in, in horrible conditions. The second thing was they were hoping to bring education by reading through these selected scriptures. Uh, they would help to bring the literacy rate up. And, and the third thing was that they wanted to provide a Bible that had selected parts that will teach enslaved Africans to be obedient to their masters. Now let that just sit for a second. The three-pronged approach was to bring the hope of Jesus, to bring education, and then to provide a Bible that has selected parts that will teach enslaved Africans to be obedient to their masters. 
Now, if you were to go and visit the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. today, you could get your hands on one of these so-called slave Bibles. And as you flipped through it, you would notice very quickly that it was a little thinner than the Bible that we have in our seats in front of us and that many of us carry around with us. You would notice that there are entire books missing, that the story of Exodus is not there. All of the Psalms are gone. Different pieces were taken out and selected because the end game of what they were trying to do was to give just a little bit of the gospel, but not too much of it, that it would disrupt the slave trade. Now, what we see in this is a clear and and clean example of of what it means to co-opt the name of God, to bear the name of the Lord for our own means. And this is what they were doing, trying to meet their own means for their own end. And as I was reading through this, while I find it deeply disturbing, this topic of slavery has always proven to be a turbulent conversation, particularly when it comes to Scripture. You see, in our own country's history, those who claim to follow in the ways of Jesus have defended the practice of slavery while using scripture, while others who opposed slavery did the same. But what are we to make of such statements that we see throughout scripture in these conversations around slavery and when we read the words of Paul that say, slaves, obey your masters. See, questions start to come as to why is the Bible not clearer in its opposition to slavery? Does does the Bible condone slavery? And then some of us have the question, why are you even talking about this? This isn't relevant to us at all here and now. But the truth is, while we may feel very far removed from this conversation, we're really not as far removed as we'd like to be. And that's not just because slavery does still exist in the world around us. It's not just because Sacramento still continues to be a hub for sex trafficking. See, what we start to see is that slavery is a symptom of a greater problem. And we start to see within it the the roots of, of power and how we use power and how we use influence. And this conversation starts to take us down roads about systems of oppression. And what's our part in living out something different? Because really the heart of this conversation pushes us to look at how we deal with humans as a whole. And so to do that this morning, we find ourselves again at the foot of the mountain. God is revealing his instructions to his people. The people had come forth and God had given them the the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that function as this trellis that help us to, to flourish as God's people and to live as a reflection of Him and a reflection of His character. And last week we talked around this very idea that Jesus saw all these 613 laws that would come out of this conversation. He would take these 10 words and these 10 commandments and he would summarize them with two, that you are to love God and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. See, Scripture's clear on some things that sometimes we don't see as so clear. Pastor Sam and I were talking about this passage and and I so appreciated uh, 
his thoughts around this. We were talking around kind of the, the movement of Exodus in general, and he, he pointed out this truth that there's this narrative arc that points to the righteousness and the holiness of God, that he is so set apart. But what God is doing in this moment and what we see throughout the Exodus story is that God in his righteousness is inviting us into right standing with him. And to be righteous, to be a people that are set apart means to have right standing with God. But we see that the fruit of a right standing with God should be seen in how we rightly treat others. That we should elevate those around us, that we should not oppress them and keep them down, that we should see them as fellow image bearers of the very one who made us. See, and this is what causes us to to pause when we come to passages in Scripture that speak to, to slavery. We find it inconsistent. We find it too clear. We find it too quiet. We find it too loud. We find it too permissive. We find it too subversive. And so I think it's important for us, before we dive into this passage, to to first step back and recognize context. Because context is so important for us and for this conversation. Now, let me be clear from the onset. There is no part of me this morning that is making a case for slavery. I am not looking to condone slavery in any fashion. But what I want us to step back and look at is to, to recognize that when we hear the word slave, we hear it in our Western society context. We see it through the lens of what we've experienced in the transatlantic slave trade. We, we think in terms of our own country and the incredible atrocities that were committed against so many African-American men, women, and children. We see examples of this. We see the racial discrimination that stemmed from this and, and continued to ravage our country and continues to ravage our country. But the context that we step into this morning of the ancient Near East, and even when we look at the New Testament in the context of the, the first century, the Roman Empire, is different. See, in the ancient Near East, there were many that were considered slaves. And by the first century of the Roman Empire, it's estimated that 50% of the population functioned as slaves. But but slavery in both contexts worked more like an indentured servitude, that it was a way of of getting back on your feet, of, of paying off your debts. And so you would give yourself in service to someone for a while to find your way. And in Rome, we, we see that slavery could often be used as a way of attaining freedom and Roman citizenship and with all the rights and privileges that would come alongside of that. Now, again, don't hear me trying to justify slavery in any form because we see throughout history as well, going back to the ancient Near East, that there was terrible atrocities and abuses that that people experienced. The conditions of some servants were, were horrid and their masters could be cruel. But what's helpful for us in making this distinction is to see a context where this had become so normalized. But what we start to see is that God and his instructions concerning slaves is bringing about something that is subversive to the system of oppression that was common to the Israelites' day. And this is why context is so important. Craig Keener and John Walton state 
this concerning the context of Israelites in Moses' day. He says this, In Israel, then, the institution of slavery was not the result of bigotry or ethnic exploitation. It was an economic relief structure designed to deal with insolvency and its related threat to life and welfare that was all too common in an agrarian society. It was supposed to reflect compassion, not oppression. Now that supposed word is a big hinge word there. It was supposed to reflect compassion and not oppression. This does not mean, however, that it was always successful or that it was somehow a God-approved institution. God's interaction with Israel was rarely designed to replace one shape of society with another. God was concerned that whatever the shape of their social instructions, people should live out their holy status they had been given in association with a holy God. And what these two authors are saying is slavery in the ancient Near East was not the ideal, but the people of God were to enact it with compassion as they lived towards a new ideal. Now, I know the second you say anything about compassionate slavery, it makes no sense and it sounds like nonsense. But the words of God were to be guides for the people and a means towards maintaining and establishing human dignity for all and not seeing another human as merely a tool for one's own use. This is so important. See, this is where we often find ourselves just as guilty as those that we like to condemn. Because we will limit people or we will relegate people to a means to an end, a cog in our wheel to get what we want, a way to boost our clientele, a project to be fixed, or a resource that we merely need to take from. We, we dehumanize the person that is in front of us to get what we want from them. So as we step into this passage this morning, we are going to see a people that have just been freed from slavery, now being given instructions on how to deal with slaves. But God has freed his people and he's taken them from the oppression of Pharaoh, from a system of oppression that sought to keep them down for Pharaoh's own power, And now as as those who will bear and carry God's own name, he is shaping a different way forward within the context of history and within his people. So you can see why when I looked at this passage, I really hoped to skip past it, but I feel we cannot because there's too much truth contained in here. And when we step back and we start to see the narrative of what scripture is speaking towards the worth of all humanity, we as image bearers of God need to pay attention. So Exodus 21 begins like this. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. These are the rules, the the mishpatim, the authoritative code of conduct the Israelites were to live by. The trellis of the Ten Commandments had been set, and now we step into real-time examples the Israelites would face on how they were to live in the moment. Now, we have to remember that when the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words were given, all the people were present. Soon after this, though, the people shrunk back from God. He was too great and too powerful, and they were too afraid. And so they said, Moses, you just talk to him for us. 
And so this book of the covenant, these rules that we step into over this next section of Exodus is a conversation that the Lord is now having with Moses and he is to set these rules before the Israelite people. And in verse 2 of chapter 21, we read this. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. So right off the bat, we are jumping into the uncomfortable conversation that is slavery. When you buy a Hebrew slave, when you take from someone who is of your own people, these are the rules in place. When you take someone to be your slave, he shall work for six years, and in the seventh year, he shall be set free. See, already we're starting to see something different forming here. It's not perfect. It's not where we want it to be, but there's something underpinning what's happening here. This is not to be a lifelong endeavor, but a means to getting back on one's feet, of working off a debt so that you have a possibility towards a life of your own. And the one who owns the person, the the, the slave owner in this case, is not to take advantage of the other person. They are to, to let them have work for them for no more than seven years, and then they are to let them free. Now, what's interesting to me is is we we read this and then it continues on in verse 3 and it says, if he comes in single, speaking of the slave, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. See, now we get right back into the uncomfortableness. We see something different forming, but now we're seeing a family split apart because of these rules. When a slave was set free, he was to go out and he didn't have to pay anything to be free. He was just now free. He had served his time, but he would go out with whatever he came with. If he he was serving alongside his wife who had started her service alongside him, then the two would go out together. But if over the course of the time that he was working for his master, he was given a woman and they had a family together, he would have to leave them in the care of the master and he would have to go out on his own. Now, what's interesting to note is by the time we get to Deuteronomy, uh, we see something a little bit different forming as well. In, In chapter 15, verse 12, we read this. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, it makes distinction there, so this is covering both, is sold to you, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go for, go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. See, what we're going to see throughout the Israelites' history is in these conversations, God is constantly reminding his people where they came from. You were enslaved, you were oppressed, you were held down. And I redeemed you and I saved you and I rescued you. I blessed you so that you can bless others. So when you have someone who's been working for you for seven years and they are now to be set free, you don't let them go empty-handed. You take care of them. You bless them as I have blessed you and taken care of. As the Lord has blessed, so you shall bless. As the Lord has freed, so you shall free. This is what is to be written into the lives and the rhythms of God's people from the jump. Now, to to be fair, this did not always occur. 
There was many who abused this and refused to enact these laws because they saw the, the loss of what would happen if they were to live this way. And they, they lost sight of how to deal with humans and how to deal with one another with respect for each other. When this was abused, it was because someone, again, saw someone merely as just a means to an end or a tool. They forgot that those across the way were human beings made in the image of God. And so as people who were to be bearing the name of God, they were to treat people in the same way God had treated them. But still, we have this problem. We didn't answer that with this text, that this man has been set free, but now his family has to be left behind. And the options for such a one wouldn't be great. He could try and find a place to live nearby so that he could visit his family. He could try and save up enough money so that he could buy back his entire family. Or in verse 5, we see another uh, way that he could go forward. In verse 5 says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now again, when we read this through our cultural lens, we are appalled. Much like when we we hear even today of arranged marriages, we have no understanding of how that could function or work. But what we fail to see and what's being written in this is that those considered slaves were be, being given a choice. Now, it's not, it doesn't seem like a great choice, but they were being given a choice here. And this arrangement was to work both ways. So while the one who is offering his services and saying, you know what, I, I, I love my master, I'm going to stay under the protection of his household, and I'm going to keep my family together, while there was, he was saying, I, w- I will be with you, There's a flip side to this too that we have to recognize that the master was also to take this person into his home to care for him, to provide for him, to treat him as a human being in this moment. Now we hear this whole thing of going to the doorpost and having it all put through your ear and it doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, although some people still choose to do that today. But any time we're reading in scripture and something's related to the ear, what this always has to deal with is this idea of obedience. It's why when the priests would come before the Lord and they would be consecrated, they would have blood put on their ears so that they would continue to listen to and obey the Lord above all else. And so what this slave would be saying is that I'm going to continue to be obedient for my lifetime with you. But the master is to, to care for his slave as well and to continue to provide for him as well. See, while we see this is still, it's a flawed system. No one is claiming perfection here. No one is claiming that this is as comfortable as we would like. The thread we will see throughout scripture is that God continues to step into broken and flawed systems. That God continues to step into and work within broken humanity. And he does so to bring about a better way, his kingdom and his way that's only possible through him. Verse 7, we pick back up. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. 
So again, we, we, we get a little bit further down, and now we're talking about a daughter being sold into slavery. And what, what conversation are we having? But underneath the, this, we see what God is doing is he sees that his people are living in a world where this is commonplace. He knows they're going to be pulled in all different directions, and so he's putting these guidelines in place to protect the vulnerable. This daughter who would be sold as a slave it could not be discarded at the, the master's whim. Should he decide that he no longer had need for her, he couldn't just let her go. He had to let her go freely. She didn't have to pay for her freedom. She was to be given a right as a free person. And he wasn't able to sell her to a foreign country or a foreign place since he was the one who had broken faith with her. He was to be held accountable for his actions. See, this is the difference that we start to see in these laws that are being put in place is that those who were in ownership, so to speak, were to be accountable for the well-being of those who fell under their care. Now, again, not trying to justify anything or saying that this is a perfect system. This is a flawed system that God is looking to put guardrails in to speak to the value of human life. And so, move on. Verse 9. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. See, what he's saying here is that if, if this girl is brought into his home and he says, this is going to be my son's wife, then he is not to treat her as a slave. He is to treat her as a daughter. He is to care for her as he would a child of his own. Now, if he takes a, another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Again, this is speaking to someone who would be considered incredibly vulnerable in the ancient Near East and providing protection for this girl. Should she be cast aside? Should another wife be taken? Which I know we read that and we're like, well, there's a whole nother conversation, right? So let's talk about polygamy this morning since we're already having so much fun, right? <laughs> I know you guys probably thought Super Bowl Sunday, it'll probably be light today. I wish. We're not even going to get into the polygamy thing. It's a whole other conversation. And we see the redemption of that even throughout Scripture. But what we see in this moment is, is he's saying, if you take another wife, you cannot neglect those who are already in your home. You have to continue to care for those who are in your house. You have to continue to provide a means for her to have children and to, to, a means for her to have a, a way of life. And if you don't, then she gets to walk free and, and you don't get paid anything. Whatever you bought her for, that's, that's gone. She doesn't have to redeem herself. She is to be set free because you are accountable to those who fall under your care. Again, we have a hard time seeing this because, because it's such a flawed system, but God is trying to keep the humanity of each person in front of one another. Actions have to have consequences, human consequences. And to treat people as a tool or a means to an end is to treat people as Pharaoh did. It's to treat them and to oppress them and to perpetuate a system of oppression. And this is what God was drawing his people out of. You are not to keep people down for your own gain. You just came from a place where you're doing that. 
So however you do this needs to reflect the character of God. And so they're supposed to live in line with the character of their Redeemer. This is the call for each of us and how we are to deal with all human beings around us. And this is how the Lord has dealt with us. Now again, verse or chapter 21 contains a lot of different subjects. We're going to spend some time on Wednesday night looking at some of the other subjects that are there, but I want to stay within this framework of, of slavery here because there's three other verses that hit on this. In, in Exodus 21, 16, jumping down a little bit, it says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now when we hear that, this is one of the verses that was used in our country's history to speak out against slavery, those who were stolen from their home, those who were stolen from their homeland. This goes against and is contrary to what God had designed for us. You can't steal somebody. You can't grab hold of someone and say they are now yours. Exodus twenty-one twenty: when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. You can't treat people however you think you can. If you kill your slave, you, you are, are held accountable. You will be uh, held under punishment for that. Now, when we drop down to verse 21, this is where it gets a little bit like, oh gosh, I just wish we could skip past, right? But it says, if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money, meaning the slave is the master's money. And so now we're back to this conversation around somebody being somebody else's property. And, and what he's saying is the, the accountability in this moment is that if you injure your slave and they're unable to work, well, then you're just out the, the, the wages and the work that that slave would have been able to do. The punishment still falls back on you. There's no reason for you to act this way because it all comes back to punishing you and you are accountable. Exodus twenty one twenty six. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his teeth. See, how a slave was treated mattered. And God is speaking to that truth here. This is all part of God's instruction as to how to deal with human beings. You cannot strike someone and inflict lasting damage with no consequence. See, these laws were put in place to protect the enslaved. And these laws were in place to ensure that owners would not be violent towards the people that came under their care and that they would, again, reflect their Redeemer in how they treated other humans. But the unfortunate thing is that history has shown us quite the opposite. In a flawed and broken system, God was putting guardrails in place that would help protect people and point them towards a better way forward, a better way of treating others. But the symptom of slavery pointed to a greater problem. That the heart of man is deceitful above all things and, and humanity has a way of, of bending towards the, the wrong direction. The wheels come off quickly and, and when we grasp at power, we're very, we're very slow to give that up even when it's at ill-gotten means. This is a little bit of what I see as, as the Aladdin syndrome. Have any of you seen Aladdin? I know this seems out of place in what we're talking around to suddenly talk about a Disney movie, but go with me. Anyone seen Aladdin? Cartoon? 
Okay, the cartoon's much better than the live action one that just came out. Just my little side two cents there. So the story of Aladdin is one that many of us know. It's about a young thief. He's considered a diamond in the rough, but he's, he's a thief nonetheless. The only thing he owns and the only companion he has is his monkey, Apu. And he has nothing at the start of this story. He has no, no power, no control. There's, there's nothing that he has when he starts the story. And then suddenly he comes in possession of a lamp. And inside that lamp is a genie that is all powerful. And this genie will do whatever he asks him to do. But before Aladdin knows what this power feels like or what it's like to have power, he tells the genie, I tell you what, with my last wish, I'm going to set you free. And it sounds unheard of. The genie doesn't believe him because he's like, that's too good to be true. No one has ever thought like that before. And Aladdin's like, no, it's not a big deal. He's never had power. He doesn't know what he's giving up. So he's like, no, this is going to be great until he makes two wishes, right? And then suddenly he makes his two wishes and suddenly he's like, life's going pretty good. And that last wish that he needs to use to free the genie, that becomes a little bit more of a struggle because he likes the power he has, even if it's coming at the expense of somebody else because he wants to hold on to the control that he has. Now, in the end, not to ruin the movie for you, but Aladdin does come through. He makes the right choice, and he frees the genie, and it's this beautiful moment. And honestly, I think it's a beautiful moment that reflects the character of our good and gracious God. But there's something about that truth that any power we are reluctant to give up, even if it's minor power, we all long to maintain that sense of control, even if it's at the expense of others. See, and the, the power of, of control really becomes a, a slavery of control for us. And we become a slave to the illusion of control, and then suddenly we just find ourselves lost. Because the people around us lose their humanity because we just see them as a means to our end. So jumping back to our original question, with all this talk of slavery, with all these laws in place, does the Bible condone slavery? Is it giving a pass here in a way that it shouldn't? Well, let me answer you with this. In 1807, the Society for the Conversion of Negro Slaves created a resource to reach slaves that were part of the British Empire and under the control in the Caribbean Isles. Three charters of this society was to bring the hope of Jesus, to bring education, and the last one was to provide a Bible that has selected parts that will teach enslaved Africans to be obedient to their masters. See, to me, right there is the answer to the question, does the Bible condone slavery? You see, in order for this society to come up with an appropriate text to, to be able to keep the, the obedience of enslaved Africans, they had to remove 90% of the Old Testament. They had to remove 50% of the New Testament scriptures because the overall witness and the thread and the fingerprints of God that are all over scripture point us towards a treatment of others that does not allow for a system of oppression where one holds down the other, where one limits the abilities of the other, or where one holds power at the expense of the humanity of another. This is the witness we see within Scripture while still having to deal with some tough passages.
See, we, we see that God is calling his people and providing a way for us to have right standing with him. And the fruit of a right standing with God will be to treat others and to have right standing with those around us, to reflect our creator in the way we treat one another. But again, herein lies the problem. Slavery is a symptom of the greater problem of human sin. And God is pointing the Israelites in this moment in a way in which they should go. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to begin to treat people in line with who I am. But still, sin would plague them just as it plagues us today. And we cannot overcome it with our own strength. Try as we might. And so we feel this gap of what we long for and what God is calling us to and this inability to get there. That is until Jesus shows up on the scene. And he lives a life as a pattern for us to follow in the way he, he treats people, the way he embraces people, the way he loves people, the way he comes alongside people in all of their brokenness and all of their flaws. See, Jesus would not grasp hold of his own power, but he would use it generously to free us all from the slavery of sin once and for all. In the book of Philippians, Paul reminds us just how much he gave up for us. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves. This is the way in which you should think and move and have your being. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not hold tight to it, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus set an example and a tone for us that power is not a thing to be grasped. It's a thing to be given away freely. We're not to hold tight to our own will and our own way, but we are to reflect our good heavenly king by living a life that serves those around us and loves those around us, that does not oppress those around us. Because if we're seeking the good of the other, we cannot oppress them at the same time. And if we are seeking to serve, we cannot enslave. And if we seek to follow in the way of Jesus, we cannot withhold love from those around us. And this is the thread that God is weaving throughout Scripture. And it's sometimes it's one small singular thread and we hold on to that with hope. And otherwise, it's a big red cord that can be seen so clearly that God is moving in a way that I would say answers the question, does the Bible condone slavery? No. Now, have people abused Scripture to their own ends? Yes, they have. But the movement we see of God, the movement we see in the life of Jesus is a move that should cause us to stand against slavery of any kind, that should propel us to stand against any system of oppression 
This is what should cause us to pause and reflect on our relationships and ensure that no matter how much we see someone as an enemy, we have not dehumanized them to the point where we've lost our ability to engage with them as an image bearer of our king. Because once we begin to lose that, then we are, are starting to get to that dangerous ground where we're free to oppress them at, our, at their expense for our own ability to feel like we are in control. And Scripture invites us into something so much other than that. And so this morning, we're going to conclude, as we always do, the first of the month, by coming to the communion table. It's our practice as a church that we we take of the cup and we take of the bread and we remember that the bread is his body broken for us. The cup represents his blood that was shed on our behalf. And this is a symbol of our right standing that has been made available in Christ. But it also gives us opportunity to pause and reflect on on the right standing that is available to all in Christ. It's also a moment for us to reflect on our standing with those within our sphere of influence. And so this morning, I would encourage you as we take the bread, we're going to do this a little bit differently. I'm I'm not going to come up and guide you back through it. I just want you to take those elements and when you are ready to take of them, but I'd encourage you to reflect on this. Is there any relationship, any person past or present that you, you looked upon as less healing, that you looked upon in a way that you oppressed them, even if just for a moment? Is there anything that God brings to mind in the way that you have looked towards another, even if it's that that thing that we all do so readily where we're so annoyed with somebody that we just try and find their one crack and we just focus on that and then we're like, well, at least I don't do that. I'm better than them. See, because what we're doing in that moment is we're tipping the scale so that we can feel elevated and they can look lower. And this is, this is what we call oppression when we push someone down. Something we're all still capable of and something that God calls us to something much greater than. So I'd encourage you, just take these moments and reflect and ask God to, to reveal to you anything where you have gone astray in this area to seek forgiveness at the table. And also to ask God to to guide and shape you and to love as he loved. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your table this morning, we are reminded of your goodness. God, may we continue to wrestle with your truths. May we continue to ask questions of it. May we continue to push and prod, but may we also continue to trust that you can withstand it. For throughout history, we have seen you working towards freeing the oppressed and bringing life where there was none. And as your people, would we be about the same things? God, would you help us to love as you have loved us? Freely and generously. Pray these things.